You're listening to the Library Pros Podcast with Chris and Bob, a techie librarian and a computer IT guy discussing libraries, technology, and all things this side of the reference desk. Thanks, Carl. Hi, and welcome to a very special COVID-19 episode of the Library Pros. I'm Chris. And I'm Bob. And today we're coming to you remotely from our COVID home studios on Long Island, New York. The Library Pros Podcast is a bi-monthly podcast. So please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find podcasts. And please check us out on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash The Library Pros. Consider leaving a review and tell a friend or colleague about us. Okay, so today joining us via Zoom is Scott Jarzenbeck. Got it right, finally. Director of the Albany Public Library in Albany, New York, which is the capital of New York State for those of us who are, those of you who are listening who are not from New York. So we're going to speak with Scott about his library's plan for reopening in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. And if you haven't yet read his article published by the New York Library Association's The Voice entitled Not a Flip of the Switch, you should. Uh, in the show notes, there is a link to that article. So I do, I do suggest reading it because I think it's required reading. And, you know, it's, it's a realistic set of expectations with regard to restarting libraries. And before we talk about... Um, what's going on and what it's going to take to get libraries back to serving their communities. Let's uh, catch up with Scott and find out a little bit about him. So thanks for joining us today. And uh, I know it's really a busy time for you, especially in light of the what's gone on with New York State in the last couple of days. Um, and I know that the state deemed Capital Region open as, as a phase one, right? Yep. So, you know, and reopening, you know, is... It, Reopening is tough, so I know your time is valuable. So tell us about your beginnings in library land. You actually grew up here on the island, right? I did. Um, I grew up in Baden Hollow, uh, went to Riverhead schools, and most importantly, I was a regular patron at the Riverhead Free Library. Um, I always mention that because it was their comic book club. I mean, I was a story time kid, uh, and I was kind of a, uh, a latchkey kid later on in life, so the library became a really important part of my early teen and tween years and they had a comic book club uh super early uh in you know mid 80s and so i was a regular at that comic book club and that's one of my fondest memories of growing up so library especially the riverhead free library was a big part of my life and that probably stuck with me and probably why i ended up becoming a librarian later on very cool tell us a little bit about how you ended up at the albany public library so uh, I was uh, going to be a social studies teacher, and I was working uh, at my college's library. It was just kind of a random job I picked up. Uh, I went to the University of Hartford, not a cheap school. My mom was like, I can help you with the tuition, but you got to feed yourself. So I worked a bunch of different jobs. I drove a shuttle bus. I uh, ran an after-school program, kind of did everything I could. And uh, the girl I was dating at the time who worked at the library was just like, hey, they need somebody at night to basically work in the reference area to help people on computers. I was, I didn't sleep back then. I don't sleep much now. Um, so it was kind of like, Hey, you know, what's the shift? It was, it was, I think it was 10 to two in the morning. And I did that four days a week. Um, you know, and it it was fun and it kind of got me into libraries and that following summer after my first semester working there, um, the director, Randy Pritting asked me to help out with a summer long project. So I stayed there over the summer and that kind of got me even more into work in libraries. I did everything from circulation to moving periodicals to doing, working, helping out the IT department to uh, painting study rooms. I was kind of like Randy's jack of all trades. And when I reached my senior year of college, I didn't get certified. I was working all these jobs. 
I couldn't do student teaching. So I was kind of like graduating with a degree, a double degree in history and education and no job. You know, I wouldn't be able to get a job because I wasn't going to get certified in teaching. So Randy pulled me aside my first semester knowing what was going on in my last year of college and said, you know, you should really think about applying to library school. Um, you're good at libraries. You seem to really love the work. I had no idea that the degree existed, to be completely honest. Um, so it was kind of like, okay. And I looked at programs. Uh, SUNY Albany had a cheap program that my mom was like, I can help you pay for if you get student loans. Um, so I jumped on that. I had actually already had friends in Albany. Uh, I had played in punk and hardcore bands. And so we had played shows up here. And for some reason, I made a lot of friends while I was in Albany. Um, spent a lot of time here, kind of fell in love with the small city kind of, uh, you know, kind of vibe that was going on. And so that it was simple. It was just, okay, I'll go to SUNY Albany and get my degree in like a, you know, in like three or four semesters. And, you know, then I'll figure out what I'll do after that. And, um, after my second semester working on my MLS, cause back then it was an MLS, uh, I got a job, a grant position with Albany public library, again, uh, working on computers, creating, you know, we're creating a network out of these grant funded computers and creating a curriculum and teaching both adults and children, um, you know, just basic digital literacy skills. And that went from what was supposed to be a, you know, a year long position to nine years with Albany Public Library. I went from once the grant dried up, they made me a library assistant. Once my degree was done, they made me the librarian, uh, which I got to do everything. I kept teaching computers, but I also got to do story times. Uh, actually, in 2000, we started what we called Computer Camp, which was an early HTML and photo and video editing program with tweens and teens. Um, that was really fun. I ran the How branch of the Albany Public Library and also opened another branch. Um, and I did that for nine years. And then I met my wife um, and we got married and was, you know, she was pregnant. We got married in November or September and she was pregnant by January. And I realized that I needed to get into library administration. She was a forklift driver at the time. Um, not something you can do when you're pregnant. So, uh, you know, I said, okay, I got to get into library administration to make a little bit more money. Um, left APL in 2009, uh, went from being a department head of the youth services department to a, a director of a small library, to a director of a, you know, a larger library. My last library was, uh, North Castle Public Library in Westchester. And we loved it down there, but the cost of living was really expensive. And in 2014, I saw that the executive director position was open at Albany Public. I had always wanted to go back to Albany. I really missed the city. I missed my friends. And I didn't think I had enough experience for the position, but through caution of the wind, the day um, the application was due, I did it that night after a long talk with my wife. And uh, it'll be now six years uh, with Albany Public Library in June. Wow, that's great. Wow, that's a crazy. That's a great story. It's crazy, too. Yeah, it's whirlwind at times. Yeah. So tell us about the Albany Public Library. You know, like how many branches does it have? You know, how many people does it serve? Obviously, it serves the city of Albany, right? Yes. So APL serves the city of Albany, which has a population of around 97,000. Um, but that swells to about 130,000 during the day with county and state employees. So, you know, we're the county seat, also the capital of New York. Um, so we have seven branches, which, you know, for a, for a population that we serve, that's that's a lot of branches. And that's spread throughout the city with an incredible staff of, of around 150 librarians, power professionals, and operations staff. Um, we're a school district library, and we're also the central library for Albany and Rensselaer County. Um, so we serve a lot. 
uh, we serve a pretty large contingent. We have about 60,000 card holders, which is pretty good for, you know, a city of 100,000. Um, our Washington Avenue branch also serves as a community hub. So we host uh, BOCES, HSC, TA, TASC, and ELA classrooms. And we have three Head Start classrooms in the building as well. And we're also the headquarters for the uh, Capital District's uh, Transit Authority. They run their bike share program out of our basement. So we have a lot of relationships in our, our one building, you know, our main building, not only serves as a branch and an operation center, but also hosts um, multiple region-wide um, programs that serve the city and also the county. Um, so that's, you know, that's the story of Albany Public Library. We're a pretty forward-facing community-centered library. Um, and it's not easy to, to operate, you know, having seven locations in a city our size. But we do it, and I think, we, uh, I think my staff do it really well. That's amazing. It really is because Albany is it's it's spread out even though it's a small city. So um, th- it sounds kind of weird to have a small city with seven branches, but if you know how Albany is, it's kind of like smushed out around. You know, from was it the Mohawk River, right? Yeah, it's fr- yeah, it's kind of the Mohawk River is a little bit north of us. We're right on the Hudson. Okay. So um, and you know it's we're we're a very diverse uh, culturally, um, you know. We're a diverse community, and we do have we do have our branches centered in pockets of culture, and they really all kind of have their own flavor, the way they serve the community, and they really reflect the people who live in around the library and use the library. It's an amazing place. I love Albany. It's always a fun place to go visit. So we have a yeah, we have a lot of uh, ground to cover. So we're going to take a short break, and when we get back, we're going to talk about uh, how Albany Public Library plans to reopen during and after COVID-19. So we will be right back. Hi, it's Chris from the Library Pros, and I want to tell you about the book Best Technologies for Public Libraries, Policies, Programs, and Services. I, along with Nick Tanzi and James Hutter, both amazing technology librarians and previous guests on this podcast, co-authored the Endeavor. If you're interested in bringing 3D printing, augmented reality, virtual reality, or drone flying to your library, this book has what you need. It's a roadmap to successfully implementing this technology because we cover purchasing, developing effective policy, finding the right software, and have model programs and services already designed to make planning programs easier. You can find the book on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy books or e-books. I hope you'll check it out. Go ahead, Bob. Welcome back. So we are back with Scott Jarzenbeck uh, from the Albany Albany Public Library. Uh, Scott, let's start at the beginning. So it's March, just a couple of months ago. Uh, we all closed down. What were you thinking at that very point? Well, you know, uh, Albany Public Library is lucky to have a connection with the College of Emergency Preparedness, Homeland Security, and Cybersecurity, or the iSchool, as we like to call it. Uh, that's now home of SUNY Albany's MSIS program. So the library program was taken on by the College of Homeland Security, which kind of made some alumni originally really uncomfortable. Um, so we went and we had a conversation with the dean a few years ago just to see you know, what the future of the library program was. And we hit it off um, really well with the staff. And they actually asked me and my assistant director, Melanie Metzger, to be um, adjunct professors. So we've been teaching 
some of the information science and library science uh, classes. And it was that relationship, I mean, where we were really lucky. Um, they provided us valuable insight into the emerging pandemic in January. I mean, there was discussion in January. Um, we were kind of, you know, we, so we started to pay attention to what was going on. And, you know, armed with that knowledge, we started discussing it with our staff, especially our leadership staff. And, you know, in late February, we started talking about closing. And uh, for a lot of our staff, they were kind of like, okay, you know, emergency preparedness, Scott, you know, he's just being overly cautious. Um, and I think Melanie talking about it a little bit too, kind of, she's she's a little less caught in, she's a little bit, you know, I think they trusted her a little bit more on this. Um, and so, you know, by the end of March, we actually had formulated verbally and in notes, a plan for closing. Um, and uh, by March 2nd or March 3rd, SUNY, you know, our program was like, you know, we got to start switching classes to online, which to us said, okay, this is now an indication. We need to put a plan before the board on closing with kind of switches. Okay, if this happens, then we're definitely going to close. We're going to, or we're going to close all locations or we're going we're to stop programming. So uh, about uh, around, I think it was around the first week of March, we had actually paused all programs. We started pulling all play toys. We actually started only receiving material through the book drop. We started wiping down material. Um, this educated our staff, this got our staff prepared. Uh, you know, we had a board meeting uh, that we had put this closing plan in front of the board, which was the second Tuesday of March. And I think it was five days later that enough of those switches went that we closed the library down. And what this did was instead of scrambling to figure out if we need to close or not, this gave my really talented staff amount of, an amount of time to start formulating, okay, if Scott is right and all of these things happen, we have to figure out how we're going to do virtual programming. So we were started talking about virtual programming about a week before we closed. We had a really good plan in place probably the first week we closed to do that. And that gave Melanie and myself and even board members time to start talking about a reopening plan. Because I said, okay, we're closed. We need, we have all these protocols we need to follow when we reopen, but you know, I don't think we're going to open in a week or two. I really think it's going to be a couple months um, because that's what we were hearing from our colleagues at, you know, the iSchool. Um, so that's when we started working on it. So we were probably about mid-March started drafting an actual physical phased plan because that's what we were being told by our colleagues at the college we should start doing. And so, you know, the plan that we've put before everybody, we had, we had an outline of it that we agreed on, the administrative staff agreed on, and that we kept sharing with basically our supervisors. Um, and each kind of each time after that, when we would meet with staff, that plan would grow, but we would introduce those new changes to frontline staff. So they were really comfortable with this idea of not only um, were we not going to be open for a while and we would be serving our public virtually, um, but also comfortable with the idea of opening was not going to be just we throw the doors open and everything's back to normal. That opening would really look like a phased kind of fader where we would move up to each step and also educating our staff in a way that going, you need to have all these phases and steps put in place because not only are we going to be moving forward, but at some time there's a strong possibility that we need to move backwards a little bit. And we need to kind of be comfortable with that idea of we might open our doors and then September say, hey, we got to close our doors and only do curbside pickup for that month. So just that idea, that phased approach where we have that theater where we may be moving up and down. Um, I'm pretty confident that it will be a slow progression forward, but you always have to build in a plan where it's like, 
you might have to pause and sit on a phase longer than you wanted to or a step longer than you wanted to. And you may you have to build in that idea of you got to move back. It makes a lot of sense because, you know, this isn't something that we're going to have a handle on for a very long time. And, no. you know, numbers, they, they, they keep talking about the bump and all this other stuff. So I, you're, I think your approach is very pragmatic and it's very realistic. So that's, that, that's just amazing. So when you shut down, like all of us did, what was your first thought regarding that continuation of service during shutdown? I mean, for us shutting down, I mean, it was really... We were in the middle of a supervisor's meeting and one of our one of our like final kind of um, switches was for the school district to close. Right. And that was for all of us, us, I think. Yeah. yeah. A lot of us are parents and all of a sudden everybody's phone beeped while we're in the middle of the supervisor's meeting. And we all looked at our phones and we all had that same look on our face like, oh, wow, this is real. This is really going to happen. So, um, you know, at first it was really like, we have a good plan for virtual service. We need to get everybody together. You know, here we go. We're going into virtual service plan, which means we shut down. We send everybody, you know, at six o'clock, we close all of our doors. We have to educate everybody. We have to get it out to the media. Um, we have to make sure all of our patrons know through all the channels we communicate with them. Um, and then it's, uh, okay, What the next plan, and then the next thing we need to do is we all met that Monday that the library was closed. We made sure that we got all the technology out to the staff who needed it. We all had a conversation about, okay, you need to start looking at this next plan. Um, and that was really it. And it was really kind of a, you know, there was a lot of administrative things that happened. There was a lot of political things. Because even though we're governed by our own board, we have these really strong partnerships with city government and the school district and having a clear line of communication with them and our stakeholders. And all of these groups that use our building and say, here's, here's the plan we put in place, but notice that it says, this plan is a living document that is going to change and grow the longer we're closed. And the longer that we're going to be closed and the more we learn about the virus, the more we communicate with our, our county health department, um, the more this plan is going to grow and become more complex and complicated. So we knew that we needed to share those changes with our staff. So it wasn't a surprise. We didn't want anybody to see this plan for the first time and be like, this is too much for my brain to handle. We really wanted our staff to understand that this is complex, but we're going to walk them through it. And it's going to be, you know, something that we're going to need to educate them on and, and talk with them and get them to understand. Um, but it was scary. I mean, it was, I'm, I'm a post-apocalyptic fiction reader. Uh, I, you know, growing up, I grew up on a farm um, and my wife grew up in a really rural area of Dutchess County. We're kind of preppers by, you know, before prepping became a thing. So it was almost like a scary moment. My, my wife and I visited family, uh, her family bought property down in Virginia two years ago. It's like 19 acres. And you know, this was during February break and we were paying attention to what was going on. And we joked like, should we go back to New York? You know, should we just empty our bank account and stay in Virginia? And where my in-laws live in Virginia, we could live off of what we had in the bank. It's not much but we could live off what we have in the bank for a little while. So it was kind of like the joking that my wife and I have, it was kind of to see, oh, wow, we're really in that situation we've always kind of discussed. It was really scary. And definitely that, that weekend was definitely, I, I sat, you know, in, in my home office, just kind of like freaking out going, you know, what the heck are we going to do next? Even though work-wise we had a plan in place. Yeah, it, it, it was scary. Definitely scary. Because we just didn't know what the hell was going to happen. That was the yeah. scariest part about it. It's great that you refer to that document as a living document, though, because uh, it, it's going to have to flux and change, you know, so often, almost on a daily event during the first couple of weeks. So it's fantastic that you that you already had that in mind. 
Yeah, and you know, we're really excited about the work that's going to come out of Realm, which is, I think, reimagining opening libraries, um, which, you know, uh, I think it's OCLC um, and a group of individuals around the state. And that work they're going to do is actually going to, um, you know, really, it's going to help inform us how we move forward on how we handle material. So if you're a library, you know, if you're in the library field out there, definitely look for Realm. Um, and subscribe to their weekly or monthly updates because um, they're they're they have now reached the point where they're doing lab observations about how long this virus lasts on material because the guess is you know 72 hours there was a document that came out of a museum and libraries group that said seven days um, so I'm looking forward to what's going to come from them because that's really going to help us figure out how quickly we can move through our phases. Yeah, seven days is way different than three, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, you're not kidding. So, Scott, tell us, when did your plan start to take shape for reopening, and what kind of guidance did you use in formulating that original plan? So uh, it was definitely, you know, again, CEHC at SUNY was our biggest guide. Uh, Albany County's health director and that the county government's been doing a fantastic job. And then just seeing what's coming out of the WHO and CDC, I mean, I'll, I'm going to be honest, from a library perspective, the first, you know, we started working on this plan, you know, starting right after we closed, we were flying kind of blind. Um, so, you know, we were just relying on those experts that were outside of the library world to kind of give us an idea of what this virus was like and how it was going to impact services. Uh, so we were working on, it. I think we, you know, we, we put this, the first version of this plan uh, out in front of our board um, in an emergency meeting that we had in the, I think it was the third or fourth week of, uh, third or fourth Tuesday of March, we had a draft plan in front of our board just to kind of educate them. I, we're lucky. Our board president is a, uh, a scientist uh, and has a, a degree, I think, in, in biology. Um, our vice, um, our vice president uh, is a, you know, has her doctorate in nursing um, and is in the medical profession and has m multiple years um, in, in the medical field. So this wasn't a surprise to them when we put it in front of them. And they, we were really lucky to have them. Um, and we have, I think we have three board members who are uh, work for the state assembly. So they knew what they were hearing at a government level. So we're really lucky to have this board that's really well educated for what we were going through and also this connection to the college. So, you know, we would put this stuff in front of, you know, colleagues over at, SUNY and in front of our board and, and they accepted. So, you know, it was, it was a little bit past mid March where we had a kind of one pager of this plan that we put in front of our board and our board was aware that this was going to grow and we were going to add to it. It was going to be more complicated as time went by. And then the upper Hudson library system that we're under, they created an ad hoc uh, committee to actually start drafting a plan uh, other library directors were making plans that kind of look like ours because we were sharing it with people pretty early. So um, we, the, the system saw that other libraries were working on a similar plan. So Tim Burke, who's our system director, said, you know, we need to start doing something. He put myself and some, some really talented library directors on that ad hoc committee to not only, so they were making plans for themselves, but also a way to guide some of our small libraries. I mean, some of our libraries are a staff of like three people. So, you know, they don't have the bandwidth to create these plans like we do. 
So we were using these documents to kind of guide them and, and walk them through it. And, you know, the capital region is huge and very diverse. I mean, Long Island, Long Island was diverse. You know, we had rural libraries when I was growing up, but now, you know, it's a little bit more sophisticated. The libraries are a little bit bigger, but, you know, in Albany and Rensselaer County, there are these still these small little libraries and they really need guidance. But at the same time, they're not seeing uh, what we're seeing. You know, capital region is one of the last regions to go into phase one. And, you know, so we knew we needed to help out our peers that we worked in the system with as well. And I think the final document that we've published and put in front of uh, our, you know, the people we serve, um, that plan is still going to grow and that plan is still going to change as, as time goes on. And also, too, you know, like you're saying, some libraries are very small, so they can take that and adapt it to what is going to work for their particular facility. It's not like, again, like you said, it's a, it's a living document. It's not something that is like you have to do it this way because this is what the committee said and blah, blah, blah. It's just it's a framework. But I think your framework is so detailed that, you know, it, it really is. It's amazing. Um, so let's talk about that plan. Uh, for first, first and foremost, in reading the plan, uh, uh, the board and your and your concern, obviously your first concern is the health and safety of the patrons and the staff, but you based your plan on three key factors, staffing capacity, capacity of facilities management, which is your custodial staff, uh, and the third being that being able to pivot in the case of a second wave, which is that rollback we were talking about before. Um, you also talk about the continuation of services plan in five phases with subparts to each phase. Can you tell us about these phases and what they mean in terms of getting back to phase five. So um, we were lucky as all this was happening, our facilities manager came from a hospital. So he also had a really, Adam had a really great connection with St. Peter's and Albany Med, and he was communicating with them. So he was buying supplies. Like he just went out, out and bought supplies and loaded us up on supplies really, really easy. And then in a responsible way, I mean, staff wanted us to buy PPE, and, you know, Adam and, and my staff were like, you know, we don't want to empty the market out on PPE. We were buying some gloves, but he goes, you know, I'm going to buy cleaning supplies now. So we're not, you know, we're, we're not robbing from the people who need PPE. So, you know, we had the cleaning supplies in place fairly early. I will share with libraries, our system is actually doing per bulk purchasing for smaller libraries and also our municipalities doing bulk purchasing and our sheriff's department. So if you're a library right now that's hearing this going, well, I didn't buy any supplies, reach out to your, your, your municipality, reach out to your sheriff's department and reach out to your local hospitals. All of them actually may, and, and see if you can do some coordination with your system. All of them may be able to do some bulk purchasing so you can get these materials when you plan to open. So Again, that put us a little bit ahead, but we knew we were on a pretty lean ship. Um, our branches are open seven days a week. Um, so the first thing that came to my mind was, well, we we just get by with the staff we have now. We have, you know, a facilities operation of about 10 people. So it was kind of like, I have to shrink my operations just based on staffing, because not only do when we do we barely have enough staff to operate the library as it is, um, we know we're going to lose some staff because they're not going to want to go back to working with the public. We also know we're going to lose some staff because they're not going to be able to work because um, they have to stay with their kids at home. And with FF, FCCRA, they're going to be able to get some time to be able to stay home. They're gonna, there's going to be some staff who are going to say, I want FMLA until I feel as if my condition's not put at danger. So we know there's going to be some attrition there. 
So, um, you know, the, the plan is these are the hours we're going to operate and they're going to be shortened hours. And to be completely honest, um, and it's in the plan, we're not opening all of our locations until we feel like we have enough staff uh, to operate them responsibly. And also we have enough cleaning supplies. We're going to be cleaning our branches um, like we've never cleaned them before. And my fear was if we opened all seven locations, the full robust hours that we would run out of supplies and we would just have to close basically because we didn't, we weren't be able to, we weren't able to keep up with the cleaning protocols that we're going to have to follow. So our phase one really only gets us to at the end of phase one, the closest we will be to serving um, the public directly outside of virtual services will be curbside pickup. Um, phase one A, the first uh, first part of that phase and that first step is just getting staff back in the building and training them how to work with each other while following that social distancing protocol. Um, phase two, um, A and B kind of looks at a hybrid library model that I think a lot of people, including myself, will be uncomfortable with because it will be by appointment. And that breaks my heart because I got into libraries because I remember being some crazy teenager cutting school or, you know, taking a break from skateboarding. And the library was that one free and open space in the community I could go to and just hang out. But for those first few phases, we're only going to be doing a by appointment library service. And we're doing that because, again, we don't have enough staff to really monitor headcount. Um, and simultaneously, we want to get patrons used to the fact that library service is going to be a little bit more constrained than it was when we closed in March. We also build in a 2A and B phase. So one week staff, half of our staff will be working in the buildings and the other half of our staff will be working from home doing virtual services. And what that does is it builds in, build in redundancy. So in case a staff member becomes sick or later in our phases, a staff member is exposed to someone who might be uh, might be sick, might test COVID positive. Um, that means we only have to quarantine that week, that shift that's in the building. And that will make it so that we don't have to close for two weeks. We may only have to close for a week or a few days. So um, I know some of my peers don't like to hear redundancy when it comes to human beings, um, but we wanted to build in that redundancy so we could continue operating and also keep our staff safe and send them home and make sure that they can quarantine. And if they are testing positive, that they can take care of themselves. Such a comprehensive program. It really is. And, and what the part that, that really makes me think how smart it is, because you're not just thinking patron, you're also thinking employees, which, you know, sometimes the employee gets lost in the shuffle. And yes. it's good to see that, it, you know, you, you're really caring for your people, which is really, really important. And I think right. that's sometimes that's lost sometimes by administration because they're so worried about how are we going to get back? How are we going to get back? How are we going to do what we're going to do? But really, you're doing it on the, the backs of the people who are working there. So it's great that you're, you know, building in the redundancy and you're, you're trying to figure out what happens if this happens. We can only continue library service if staff are working, but staff can't work if they get sick. So, um, you know, it's, it's in terms of library, you know, a lot of library trustees and directors really want to get open because it's going to be really hard to kind of make a case for their budget. But you're just going to go back to step one and also get the people who you're responsible for sick if you don't build these things in. Um, you know, we discussed with our union earlier today that we're going to be checking temperatures when people come in the building. We're going to be asking people if they're sick. We're going to be sending people home and we're going to be sending people home if they're not following protocol because it's as a library director, my responsibility is to make sure I have a, a great staff and also to take care of my staff. I, I'm not promising. I can't promise my staff they won't get sick. 
I can't promise my staff they won't get sick from being in our buildings, but I'm going to do, I'm going to try my hardest to make sure that whatever I can be responsible for, I am keeping their safety in mind because I care about them. I love my staff. My staff is awesome. I don't want to lose any of them. I don't, I, 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 I love the work they do, but I care about them as people. Um, but simultaneously, we still have to continue moving forward. And we, and we can't move forward if we don't have staff and our staff are getting sick and our staff aren't feeling comfortable in the building and they're deciding they, they don't want to be with us anymore. You know, and part of it, too, is I think there's going to be a mindset from the point of view of the staff as well, too, because like I know that we've already been told, look, cleaning isn't just something that's done by custodial anymore. And whatever job you had and job description you had right now, throw it out the window. We're all hands on deck. We're all doing whatever we need to do to make this work. And I think having that all hands on deck mentality also, in a way, kind of bonds everybody together because they know they're all in this together. And I think that, you know, that that's something that libraries need to start thinking about because it's not going to be, well, I work in reference. I work in children's. I work in circulation. It's like, okay, I'm working the circ desk today and I'm walking out and I'm putting on the the PPE and I'm putting going and asking people if they want it in their backseat or their trunk, you know. That really is what what the, our core of what we have to do until things come back to whatever normal is anymore. Normal is, yeah, yeah. And you well, know, that, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead. So that's why the phased approach is there because it's it's continual steps to a new normal. Um, and you know, I do I, I do think we're going to get there. I do think, you know, again, I'm a historian by training, and you know, it's we've been through this. Society's been through this before. I do think in a near future, you know, but near future, maybe being a year or two, we're going to get back to the library service. We all love if we do this smart, mm-hmm. because the other thing is if we become a flashpoint and all of a sudden it's on the news, you know, the, everybody's getting sick from going to the library. We're never going to be able to, to get back to where we once were. Right. So we have to be smart in our approach, not just making sure our staff don't get sick, but we have to be smart in our approach and making sure patrons don't get sick and we don't become a vector for infection. And that's why if you look at these phases, it's a slow buildup. And phase five, I don't know when we'll be there. Um, and phase five looks very much like the library before it closed. But but phase five still has a lot of the protocols built into it that we had that two weeks we were operating before we closed, where there's a lot of additional cleaning. Some of the, you know, I said some of the fun stuff about the library is going to take a while to be back. Yeah. And that's going to, I mean, I know there are already people pushing back who are saying this is against the ALA Bill of Rights. You know, this is against our core values. And I said that in that article that I wrote for Nyla, which is, yeah, that's, there's going to be a philosophical debate about, is this really what libraries are? And I think library leadership, and I'd like to see this at a state level, Library leadership has to be clear in its approach, but also has to be clear in the fact that we want to get back to that. We want to get back to where we were. We want to get back to freedom of information. We want to get back to being um, that that truthful place and that third place in the community. But we're not going to get there if we start fighting about it now. But we will get there if we're smart about this and are we phased in our approaches. Um, and if we're not and we just are clumsy in this, I don't know what libraries are going to look like in a year or two, but I, I am pretty, um, I, I do really think from looking at the plans, Ramapo Catskills, another library system, has a really great comprehensive plan in place. For those libraries that are out there that have a comprehensive, well-thought-out plan that's flexible, um, we're going to get there, but we got to be smart. And I mean, 
some of the smartest people in every community are librarians and library staff. I think we can get there. We just have to be careful in our approach. And patient. That's the biggest thing. Patient. Without a doubt, patient. Scott, I love what you said about um, bringing the staff back in and and training them to work with them, uh, to work with their staff members, you know, with having uh, PPE on, with having masks on and things like that, and taking time to get them comfortable. Yes. With working in a new environment, I think that's we can't over over see that. That's that's absolutely the, one of the biggest uh, things I just got from your last discussion. You know, yeah. I mean, we have plans for projects for them to do. We really, really, really need to do inventory of our books um, and our equipment. Um, so you know, they're going to be doing that work. We're still going to, you know, we're still going to be doing all the the great virtual programming that libraries are doing right now. They should be preparing themselves to continue to do that for, for forever, I mean, to be completely honest. Um, and the way we're using Google Meetings um, and communicating with our staff, I don't think that, I think that's, you know, to, to quote my assistant director, she's always looking for the silver lining. She, you know, she's my, my she's in the yin yang, she's the positive part. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of systematic changes that we're making as an organization that we're not going to move away from because they've been really, really positive. Um, so libraries have to look look at what they're doing now. You know what we're doing in maker spaces. Uh, our our maker space is helping with the College of Emergency Preparedness, Homeland Security, and Cybersecurity with the iSchool. We're a part of a larger project that's making face shields for our local health providers. Um, our podcast is now being launched once a week. Um, all of the all of that I expect to continue forever. You know to just be a part of what we do. Um, so we have to look at this opportunity. How is this making us better organizations um, and, and focusing on that? And if administrators have a clear plan, that gives our services staff the ability to focus on the good work, that the, the outward facing work that they do. So my staff who are super talented, they're not worried. They're worried about opening, but they're not getting caught in the minutia of it because they're comfortable with our plan. And this gives them the ability to, you know, work on the next podcast. This gives them the ability to work on the 3D printers. This gives them the ability to do the, all of that virtual plan, planning and programming that they're doing and experimenting. And that's why it's also important for your library to have a plan. So it shows that your administration has this covered. I can worry about continuing to serve the public in whatever way I can. And it keeps morale up too, right? I mean, it makes the yes. staff more comfortable knowing that you guys are taking it seriously and that you have a comprehensive plan that can flex. Uh, I would feel much more comfortable. And, and um, as a staff member, you know, to know that you have my best interest in mind and you're taking it seriously. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, we're, we're doing our job and we may be wrong. And, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I, I don't claim to be an expert in this. I don't want to claim to be an expert in this. And really the only reason that we're kind of raising, we tend to be, APL tends to be kind of quiet. We like to just do our own thing. And the reason why we're doing what we're doing, we're being very vocal about this um, is, you know, simply because we're not seeing it from some of our peer libraries and our board is like, and some of our peers and some of our staff are like, you guys really have to share what we're doing because we need to help the New York library community because we're so intertwined with each other that, you know, the success of Long Island libraries is important for us because you make us look good. Uh, New York, you know, the three big New York libraries, a lot of the work that they do, you know, we, we replicate. So we have to really look at this from a state level because we all feed off of each other. We all learn from each other. 
And if, you know, if there's these libraries that we look to, if they're faltering, then we're, then, then we have to kind of do what we can do to help them operate because it's the health of libraries across the state are important to us. So let's dive a little more. You want, oh, you want to go, Chris? You want to no, no, I was just going to say we're all about collaboration. So, you know, like just in terms with co- cooperating more with Nassau County, which we're doing a lot more now. Um, and, you know, I'd like to even expand that further. Uh, but in terms of what we do, we've always done that collaboration, whether it's with patrons or whether it's with staff members or whether it's with other libraries within our, our, um, our you know, within our county. Now, you know, it, what's happened now is really transcended counties. And now it's, especially here in New York State, it makes sense that we should all be sharing our resources. And it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah I agree. I mean, that's what yeah. libraries do well. Yeah. So let's dive a little more into the plan. Um, the plan also talks about the safety protocols, which address patron cleanliness, material handling, uh, and some cleaning protocols. It's a comprehensive list, as we've seen. Uh, tell us about how Albany is going to handle returns, common services, uh, like phones, et cetera, mice, keyboards, uh, because it's not just a facilities management job to wipe down surfaces anymore, right? No, it's not. Um, so book returns, we started you know, a week before we closed. It was returns were only through the book drop. So we're going to continue with that for some time. And we might continue with that forever. Um, and that's because instead of we were wiping down books after they were returned after a day, um, we were learning that kind of that harsh chemical was really bothering our staff. So what will happen is we're working with the system. So books that are coming from other libraries in our system will actually be quarantined at the system for 72 hours. So when we get bins in from other libraries, they will already be quarantined we can already put them back out or put them on the reserves. Books that are returning through our book drop at the end of the day, someone puts on gloves, throws them in a box, and they're going to be quarantined for 72 hours. Um, and that way, again, it saves us the, you know, it saves us the headache of uh, cleaning books with, you know, um, you know, cleaning books with harsh chemicals and kind of exposing our staff to that. Um, when it comes to devices, right now we're concentrating on how do we handle equipment for staff. All staff are going to be assigned their own mouse and their own keyboard. So you may be, if we can't give you a laptop or a Chromebook, we're trying to assign as many of our staff Chromebooks as possible or laptops. But for those of our staff who need to use kind of the circulation computers to do work, they're going to have their own mouse and their own keyboard. They're still going to be asked to wipe it down, but they're going to unplug them when they're done with their shift and put them in their locker. And that's their equipment if they have to use a desktop. Um, the other thing that we're doing is we're using, we're not going to have study rooms open for a long time. So we're actually assigning a lot of our staff kind of work in an open office plan. So now our staff are going to be assigned either that office, but it's just them in a big office, uh, assigned a small study room to work out of or assigned a small program room to work out of. So they're not sharing space that day with somebody. And that's why that A week, B week works because you know, that one person will get an A week, that one person will get a B week. They will be told on Monday, they wipe down their space. They'll be told on Friday, they wipe down their space. Then it sits for the weekend for the next person. Um, What we're probably doing once the public is coming back in the room, I don't think we're going to be moving to desktops. I think it will be Chromebooks. um, And a patron will be given a Chromebook to work, work on for a couple hours. They'll return that Chromebook, and we're trying to figure out what the best procedure to clean that Chromebook is when we get it back. It's either going to be to wipe it down, which we're not crazy about, but that's probably the direction. But we're also looking at UV lamps as well to have it sit under a UV lamp. We're really looking to see um, what they're going to find out from Realm. 
Um, you know, there was a CDC report yesterday that had good news and bad news. The good news was transmission from touching surfaces is very, very, very low. However, in that same CDC report, they did advise not to have people share computers. We think it was sharing in parallel. So we're going to continue to study that. But we think by the time we're closer to having patrons in the building, we think if we let that Chromebook sit for a night or wipe it down, it'll be safe for another patron to use. So um, again, in these phases, that the information we get from CDC is going to inform how we what we do in those next steps. Um, and, uh, you know, it's we're just going to have our facilities crew there wiping down surfaces after people mm -hmm. use them. The reason why we're, we think we're going to move to Chromebooks, we can afford to do that. Um, but also it allows the patrons to um, select their own spaces when it comes to um, when it comes to social distancing. So you come up, you check out a Chromebook, you can sit anywhere in the library you like. And that means you can select how far away you sit from somebody. Because, you know, six feet is great, but six feet for an hour next to somebody is less safe than six feet, you know, 20 feet from somebody for an hour. None wow. of this is perfect, but again, this is, we're, we're going into, you know, sadly, there's nothing from libraries from 1918 and 1919. But also <laughs> libraries in 1918 and 1919 were a little different than they are today. So, you know, it's just building in. And, you know, I'm, I'm advising a lot of library directors to have a crisis behavior policy put in place before you open your doors because that'll protect the staff from saying no you can't sit there three of you together playing chess um and you know we're going to enforce some no loitering rules so it's yeah you're in the building but you got to be doing something library related either you know an hour of balancing your checkbook or an hour of being on a chromebook but you know we can't have people congregating the way we've welcomed uh, in the past, but that'll change again, as we reach future phases, we'll be more comfortable of 10 people using a, a, a program room to meet and do, you know, community programs. So again, problems, yeah. Yeah. Look yeah, at how do you, yeah. how do you somebody that doesn't have a mask on or refuses to wear a mask in the public? They have to leave the building. Yeah. I mean that, that will be very, you know, it's going to be very clear, you know, you're only allowed in the building if you're following our protocol and our policy it's also why it's important these things are phased in. So for those few weeks where people are only coming in on an appointment basis, that's going to teach them, wow, there are rules now, now that we have to follow. And we will explain to patrons, if you don't wear a face mask, we may go back to closing the building and only doing curbside delivery. If we can't maintain social distancing, I am more than comfortable going to the board and saying, listen, we got to go back to curbside delivery only for a month because our patrons are just not able to follow this. Um, I have faith in our patrons, and I have to say Albany's been pretty great about following the protocols that are in place. Um, I drive around to make sure check on our buildings. Um, I ride around. I'm a you know I, I'm a, I like to ride my bike. Uh, I've been walking my dog for like seven miles a day. She's tired of it, um, but so I've been around the city, and people are have been pretty great. They're following the protocols. Albany's a tough town, and when you know. We, we, there's been some real strong unity around this. So I think we'll be able to educate the majority of our library patrons and the library patrons who can't follow the protocol. They're just not going to be welcome, welcome in the building until it's safe for them. You know, it's, it's interesting as you talk about all these protocols and, and safety plans, it's amazing because of how well thought out it is. And the thing that, that I think is a testament to what your, what your plan says and what you think 
is that there's so much fear about what if this lasts for three weeks on a surface versus four days versus two days versus 10 hours. And you've embraced what you think is the best policy to have based upon the science that's there that we know about. And the po- yes. that, that, that science may change. Um, you know, philosophies may change. Your philosophy may change as we start to learn more about this, if there's mutations or whatever happens with this virus when it comes to hard surfaces, cardboard surfaces, book covers, all that stuff. But the, the one thing that, that strikes me in a good way is your confidence in saying, okay, you know what? This is what we're going with and this is how we're going to do it. And we're not, yes, we may make adjustments as the CDC makes recommendations or, or changes how they feel, you know, this, the half-life of this thing is on a surface. But what I really like is your confidence and your ability to say, you know, you're holding the flag up and you're leading the charge and you're saying, this is, this is what we're doing. Let's go. Let's do this. Follow me. And I think that's a testament to your, your leadership and your leadership ability. So I commend you for that. And, you know, a lot of people are, are afraid, well, what about cardboard? Well, what about, you know, the, the, the plastic covers on books? You just have to have a policy. You have to go with it. And you have to see, and again, you're going to have a reevaluation process after you're doing curbside for a week, after you're letting people in for, you know, for the appointments after a week or after four days, whatever your metric is going to be for that. So not only are you leading the charge, you're being smart about it. And I think that's what resonates so much about when I read the plan saying this is so well thought out and your leadership just comes through. That's, I mean, I'm lucky. I have, I have a, I have a direct, you know, my direct reports are brilliant people who are extremely supportive and make, they don't, they don't make my job easy every day, um, but they make my job really easy. Um, And, you know, it's just their support makes me confident in the decision. I mean, I do not lack for anyone who knows me. I don't lack for confidence, Um, you know, but, you know, it's knowing that I have the support of my direct line and, you know, my frontline staff who don't directly report to me, but knowing that I have a really good leadership core that supports what I'm doing and, and are doing the work, are sending me the articles, you know, calling me up and we're having conversations. So, you know, we're lucky to have those resources and pl- that we can plug into and get to. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're really lucky. You know, I'm, I'm really lucky. Albany Public Library is really lucky. Um, you know, and again, at no time are we saying we're experts and no time are we saying we're going to get this 100 percent. And we keep repeating to everybody, make a plan and then change that plan. Make a plan. Stop. Reevaluate. The plan is just a guide. And sometimes we all know, like when we go out and travel somewhere, we look at it and go, OK, there's traffic. I got to find a new road to take. That's the same thing here. And then you go you try to get back on that original path and. That's what you have to do here. And that's, you know, all of this is thanks to the people I'm lucky enough to surround myself with from, you know, my assistant director down to my facilities manager and my security, you know, my community engagement clerks, my security who give me feedback and give me ideas. All of those people are invested in this and giving back really good information um, and comfortable with the fact that I may not always listen to them, but they know they're being listened to. That really is amazing. So tell us about how you're handling the staff schedules, the assignments, your work expectations and all that stuff, because Albany's approach really is interesting. I know we talked about the the A team and the B team. Um, So if you can explain, like, 
when you first went into this and said, this is what the schedule is going to be, what did you use to base that on? Did you base it on guidelines from, from, from Cuomo and the state, or did you just kind of figure it out? Or was it part of that ad hoc committee? So, you know, we were talking about it and something that was really what, what I heard it, uh, school at SUNY, uh, the high school at SUNY has weekly, um, town hall meetings that all the staff, the adjunct, every, everybody is invited to. So I've been really lucky. Most Monday evenings, I'm tuning in and listening or watching the YouTube video. And what I was hearing, you know, again, this is a school that's all about emergency preparedness. And they talked about redundancy. You have to build in redundancy. Um, and we had actually, from our work with, you know, we had a bunch of students, uh, shout out to one of my students, Ken, he works for uh, the Red Cross. We were actually some of, we were already dipping our toes in emergency preparedness with we're getting generators for our buildings in case there's a major weather event. We want the Red Cross or the city to use us as an, as an emergency shelter. So this term redundancy kept getting brought up in all these meetings. And then in one of those meetings, they talked about it with staffing. And I went, I have to build that in. So it's again with the idea of if staff are exposed, one, you, you need to let them go home, not just a quarantine, but because they're freaked out and they don't want to be at work. But you have to then think about, well, I still need to continue library service. So I have to build in this plan that if we quarantine, it's not going to be 14 days of a branch closed. It's going to be maybe three days where we do a deep clean. And also we can have staff come back the next week. So that's how we built that in. It also was the idea of we still need to do all these virtual services. So our staff are still going to be doing story times, but they're going to be doing video story times. They're going to be doing video book clubs. Yeah, they can do it while they're in the building, but they're more comfortable doing at home. So it's with the idea of we need to be in the building and working in the building, but staff still need to be able to work from home. Still need They can answer the phones. They can do reference from home. So doing that as well. So it was really easy. And it's, you know, again, we're lucky. We have seven locations. We have a lot of staff. So if we pared down our operations, this gave us enough staff to maybe cut our operations in half. Wow. That's amazing stuff. So one, this is a tough question. So one thing that has a lasting effect on libraries is the fiscal cost. Um, we all know that there will be a cost going into the future for libraries, whether it's lost funding uh, from the state or cost of databases and services going up, operating costs, skyrocketing, retirement, uh, health care. So what's your biggest challenge fiscally in the wake of this pandemic? What we were most concerned with was that bill from New York State Retirement. So, you know, most dis special district libraries um, and municipal libraries, they pay into New York State Retirement. And when um, in the 2008-2009 crash, uh, all of these libraries saw this huge bill come from New York State Retirement. I mean, close to a half a million dollars for Albany Public Library. That was our initial concern. And that's because... All of our retirement, all of us who are lucky enough to be in New York State retirement, it's in the state constitution that it needs to be funded. Um, and it's also invested so it can make money, so it can stay, you know, pretty, it can, it can stay lucrative. Um, the, the stock market right now is, is doing fine. Um, so that was our first report to the, um, to the board was this is where we're going to see financial headwinds. Um, I still think that's a possibility. I still think that in a year, we are not going to be where we are in terms of the market. So uh, CFOs and budget managers and library directors, they need to start paying attention to that bill because that bill is going to grow. The other th place where we're going to get hit really, really hard is we're not making money off of copies. We're not making money off of printing. We're not making money off book sales. We're not making money off of all the 
all this interesting, you know, it's like 10% for most of our budget, but it's still 10%. So, um, you know, that money that we make on top of tax dollars, that money is going to dry up really quick. So we need to prepare ourselves for that. Um, so I really see things like program budgets getting a, a really big slash because they tend to, you know, I know there are libraries that pretty much fund their entire program budget from their friends of the library book sale. They're not going to see the money that they saw from that. So directors and budget managers have to really start thinking about, you know, the impact those small things are going to make on the overall budget. Um, I am really concerned with what our tax receipts are going to look like at the end of the year. I think at the end of this year, most people's money are in escrow. So I don't see a huge hit on people not being able to pay their property taxes. I do think that's going to change considerably next year in the 2020-21 fiscal year. So I, I think the fiscal pain isn't going to just be now. The financial pain is going to be for the next one or two years. Um, and then there's the hit. There's already a 20% cut on state funding. Um, which is going to significantly impact the money that systems get. Um, and it's going to be significantly impact the money that central libraries get when it comes to central library collection development, which most systems are, and libraries are spending that on eBooks. So we're now going to have to take money from our collection development funds and put them into what we're losing as central libraries. So there's a, there's kind of a cascading effect where everything's going to get hit and everything's going to be cut marginally but i think it's that overall kind of you know not death by you know a thousand cuts but definitely injury by a thousand cuts that we're going to have to manage and figure out i do think there's going to be a lot of early retirements um i do think the cost of health care is going to go up um and those are all things that library administrators are going to really have to think about going forward you know it's interesting that you say because this is i think what everybody's saying you know we're not going to be back for a year, this is really a two-year plan, and I think everybody's saying it's a two-year plan. Yeah. And God, I hope it's just a two-year plan before we start to get back to you know whatever we thought normal was. And fiscally, you know, you would hope that once you know the economy opens back up, people go back to work, the economy starts to you know really move forward, and and, and people start to be employed again. So it, it brings back all of the um, all the fiscal end of of this uh, pandemic that's that's affected us all. So, you know, in, in terms of that, it's just interesting to me that you're it, just our conversation talking about two years from now. It's not just with you. I've heard this from colleagues, friends, other people that I know that are outside of library land and talking about what happens in two years, because I think we're all anticipating a vaccine in the next year, year and a half. And then by that two year point, I mean, and that's hopeful, obviously, but, you know, then we can get all get the vaccinations. And then if it does hit again, it'll be like COVID and flu season. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we keep talking about, uh, a, a, um, you know, we, we, we keep talking about that as that solution because we love quick, tangible solutions, but more than likely, you know, from what I've been reading and what I've been hearing, this is going to be more like other, you know, pandemics where, you know, it hits less people are either, immune or their systems are used, you know, have enough antibodies naturally so that those infections happen less often or not at all, um, that they get better with the therapeutics and they already are getting better with treating the disease. Um, it hits people who are, you know, susceptible to it, which means there's less people in the community that will catch it. That's how this is going to end. It's going to end like, you know, the Spanish flu. It's not going to end with 
you know, Dr. Fauci flies in on a, you know, in a parachute with a needle and, you know, everybody's saved. Um, we're all looking for that. We're all looking for that movie ending. That's not coming. Um, you know, I think it's going to be more of we learn to live with it. It becomes like the flu, um, maybe a, a more dangerous flu, maybe a less dangerous flu. Um, that's what I, I mean. I think we see it with our kids. Our kids are exposed to other viruses. And so they've handled this much better. Um, so, again, as this goes forward in the future, you're going to have people. And this is what happened in past pandemics you know, they're, they're like, they're exposed. So they're, they're either going to, they're going to come down with a lesser version or they're just not going to get sick with it at all. That's what I think the future is. That's why it's two years out. Um, and then maybe in two or three years, you know, we do have, so, you know, we do have something that looks like, the, you know, the H1N1 virus is included in our flu shots. And that's more likely what it's going to be is just, you get the flu shot because part of the flu shot's going to have, uh, you know, going to have this, this something that makes us less susceptible to this virus that's out there. But I, I think we'd be fooling ourselves if we don't think it's endemic. Um, and I do think we're going to slow it down by some of the things that we have in our plants. Like, you know, I, I feel bad for my friends in music because they're worried about their jobs because when are we going to have huge concerts again that are, that are safe for everybody. Um, and it might be for a long time. The only people going to concerts are, are 18, you know, that 18 through 30 set because they feel comfortable. Um, I love jujitsu. That's my hobby. I don't know when I'm going to be back at my jujitsu gym. I emailed my coach and my professor the other day. I was just like, just because you guys open the doors does not mean I'm comfortable going back. So life's going to change for us for the next two years, especially those of us who are older. And we have to think about that when it comes to libraries and have that in our plan. So no, I don't think in six months, magically, we're going to have a shot that everybody's going to get. And that's going to make life, you know, January 1st, everything goes back to normal and that switch flips back on. I think we accept it. I think we learn to live with it. I think the medical profession has done an incredible job of already bringing down, you know, the death rate by the way they're treating it. And I also think the therapeutics will be there. I don't know if it'll be remdesivir or what it will be, but they'll learn to mitigate it. It's, you know, that that is how we're going to move forward. And then hopefully in two years, there will be that shot that we'll be able to take safely so that we don't get us. Okay. And then libraries can go back to having a hundred people in their auditorium, you know, enjoying classical music and a book talk. Well, that's a great transition to the question that I know Bob wants to ask. Okay. Oh, you want to do it before the break? All right, yeah, yeah, it. yeah. Go for it. Scott, tell us about your history with uh, punk and hard rock. Oh God. Um, so I, you know, I grew up a punk rock kid, um, skateboarding, causing mayhem, racing BMX bikes. Um, and then, uh, my senior year, junior, senior year, high school, I got into playing music. So I played in a bunch of bands, um, playing a band called trip face, which, which was for the long Island hardcore scene in 97. You know, we, we played pretty big shows. We played with bands like vision of disorder who went on to be like national, a national touring band class jaw were friends of ours. Our bass player toured with them for a while. Um, some bands like sound majority and decision bands that are pretty fairly well known uh, toured with those bands, played shows with those bands. And, and my music career stopped in 99. And then when I moved to Albany, everybody I knew was involved in music. So in the early 2000s and later 2000s, I, I played in a bunch of bands. I booked shows. And more importantly, I was a bouncer at the majority of the punk and hardcore shows that went on in both Albany and also the Poughkeepsie area. Um, and did that for a really long. It helped, uh, helped pay for kids, helped, uh, we saved our money. My wife was a bouncer too. 
uh, and we put our money away and helped pay for the down payment on this house. Um, so yeah, really long career in punk and hardcore, um, and made a lot of really good friends there. And on, honestly, um, helped me understand what we're going through right now. Cause I have friends who I still communicate with. Some of those guys went on to pot and, and some of the people went on to not only politics, uh, Justin Brannon, he's a city council member who represents Brooklyn, um, but also went into health and emergency preparedness. So uh, I pinged all of those people and we've all had good conversations. What do you so, play? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's, if it was the mid nineties, my band either played a show that you attended at some VFW hall somewhere, or I was standing there or helping, you know, make sure the PA was working. Do you play bass or drums or what do you I like? play bass. Uh, I play a little bit of guitar. I, I sang, I yelled in a lot of those bands <laughs> um, and uh, played, but my instrument's bass and uh, been playing a lot more bass lately because, you know, the first few weeks I was stuck inside and that was, you know, that's kind of how those hours where the bad thoughts creeped in. I grabbed the bit play uh, bass and I learned to play like out a lot of damned songs. Um, you know, so a lot of old punk songs for some reason, it was like the clash and the damned. I was like, all right, I'm going to learn how to play these songs. Cause I didn't learn how to play them. When, I didn't learn how to play them well when I was young. So uh, great. I know exactly what you mean, because my guitar has been sitting in the corner of my bedroom for years. And I'm like, you know what? I want to learn how to play Off Off He Goes by Pearl Jam. Yeah. And, and you know, <laughs> yeah. I've been working on it for like three weeks because I can't read music. But, you know, I'm one of those hackers. But it's fun. It's fun to yeah. just lose yourself in something, anything. It was a great way to relieve stress. And I'm, st I'm not doing it as much because I've been so busy with, with work and walking the dog. Um, but I definitely know when it starts, when the weather is not as friendly... Um, I'm definitely going to go back to that for some stress release. Well, this has been amazing. Um, and I know we do have one more segment to go, but I got to thank you for taking the time because I know how busy it is and how crazy things are now. And yeah, I and, have to go because I got to give somebody their annual review. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's right. a good one. So we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to run through that top 10 list we do for everybody. You good with that? Yeah, I can do that. Okay, great. We'll be back in just a moment. I gotta find the button. <laughs> there we go. We are back with Scott Jarzenbeck, uh, who will be our next participant in our 032 list. The questions in our list were inspired by Literary Hub, a library news site that has stories and interviews related to library land. You can see their work by visiting lithub.com, and they do a great job educating and informing library professionals on great topics from all over the world. Thank you, Literary Hub. Okay, so you ready? Yes. Okay, here we go. First question. What did you want to be when you were a child? A priest. Um, a priest? I was an altar boy. Um, and then also the military, which a lot of my friends who I grew up with went into the military. Opposite of punk hardcore rock band. Right? Punk hardcore <laughs> ruined me. <basically. laughs> girls and girls and, and punk. That was That's it. Great, That's fantastic. Yeah, priesthood disappeared after that. <laughs> so what's your first memory of a library and who brought you to the library for the first time? Uh, I, I, definitely my mom. Um, and definitely um, 
it was a story time slash program that was uh, about animals um, and about nature. And that's really all I remember of it. But uh, I mean, I, I was probably going to the library before I could walk. Uh, Riverhead Free Library has this cute yellow barn next to it. And I, that barn's like in the back of my brain. Like it, it's always been, you know, I always, I, I can like picture it uh, even before they re, you know, redid and did a nice job of, of rehabbing the library. But, free yeah. shadow, Chris, the Riverhead Library. Yeah. yeah I mean, it, it's, uh, it's, that's my, that my childhood was, that's one of the first things I think about when I think about my childhood. Okay. So when you, when did you decide to work in a library? We may have covered this earlier, but it, and it wasn't your first career path. Obviously we talked about it before, but you wanted to be a historian and history teacher. Uh, that was your first career choice. So it, it seems like everybody, their career choice for librarianship is a second career choice. So what, uh, when did you decide to make that jump to libraries? So it was probably my jump to, you know, I decided to make a jump for libraries, um, you know, in college. And I thought maybe be school media specialist, that actually was the, the direction I was going. But I decided that I wanted to stay in public libraries um, probably after my first day at Howe. Um, it was just, it was an automatic fit. Uh, not a lot of people coming in the door, but a bunch of kids came in. Uh, they knew it was, here's this new guy. They wanted to get to know me. And I just hung out with a bunch of teenagers for pretty much on the stoop of the library for like an hour because nobody was coming in. And after that, I was like, oh, this is it. I can hang out with teenagers at a library. If this is a job and they're paying me to do this, I'm public libraries for the rest of my career. So who's your favorite fictional librarian? I don't have a favorite fictional librarian, um, but I do have a favorite fictional library moment. Is that okay? Does that go for it? Sure. Go for it. So Walter Mosley is one of my favorite writers. He writes kind of pulpy uh, mystery slash crime books. Um, Specifically, uh, his characters are always people of color. It's out of, you know, his characters in the 50s, 60s, and 70s in LA in Watts. Um, You know, really kind of nitty criminal stuff. I love it. Um, One of his first books, White Butterfly, has a section in it where he talks about this really well-meaning library in this predominantly, uh, um, you know, in, in a community that's primarily people of color and from different ethnic backgrounds. And he talks about how he liked the librarian because she was dedicated to the community and, you know, she was always there and she was a great resource. But he also talked about the things about the librarian that bothered him. She was always correcting people's English and she was always uh, introducing books that were like, you know, that were more from a Eurocentric background. Um, And I read this passage probably when I was like 23, 24, just starting in libraries. And it really, these five pages stuck with me. And it really changed my approach and how I, how I served the community um, and how I spoke with my kids. And sometimes I would have good conversations with them about, yeah, you're, it's totally comfortable to speak the way you speak, um, you know, and that's from your community um, and kind of worked with them on how they can communicate with other librarians and other teachers that weren't necessarily from their background. Um, and, and just that, that, you know, those four or five pages and just how we talked about the librarian really changed my approach to librarianship and made me think about my own bias really early in my career and how I needed to change the approach to the communities I serve and still serve. Okay. So what would you be doing if you were not working in a library? I think we pretty much know the answer to that one. Um, oh God. Um, you know, you know, I don't really know. Um, 
I joked early in my career that I was going to be a truck driver because I'd make my dad was a truck driver. I was going to make more money as a truck driver than as a librarian. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I still joke about leaving the profession. But when they ask me, I'm not really sure what what I would do. Maybe teach. I love teaching. I teach, you know, my adjunct position at SUNY is great and I love teaching. So, yeah, it, my kid actually asked me the other day what, what, what I would do. And it would probably be teaching either going back and being a social studies teacher or trying to teach library school full time. So Scott, what's your favorite section of the library? Oh, that's easy. It's always the children's section. Um, you know, it's, uh, I, 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 that's, you know, that, that's, that's where I'm at. That's where I'm always going to be at is just, you know, either after school and mixing it up with the teenagers and the tweens that are there. They always get a kick when the director of the library is there. You know, it's the guy in the suit. And then the fact that I can have a conversation with them about stuff. Um, it's just fun. That's, that's what I like to visit. I had a middle school, I had a middle, my, my uncle was a shop teacher. I had a middle school principal who I was close with and he would show up in classrooms and we'd all be like, Oh, the teacher's in trouble. And finally, my uncle pulled him aside and was like, why do you show up in my classroom? And he goes, I need to see how the work's being done. And that's what I do when I get really frustrated, either, you know, with the board or I get really frustrated with staff or I get really frustrated with funding and, and budgets and making everything work. I show up and my youth services librarians know this. I show up and sometimes I sit down with my laptop and just do work. But I show up at a branch or in the children's room and just hang out because um, I need to get that. I need to remember what the work's really about. And it's about those kids who don't have anywhere to go after school or those parents who need a place to kind of, you know, get their children to love, love reading. So that's that's my spot in the library. Wow, that's a great answer. Holy cow. So if you had infinite space and budget, what would you add to your library? I don't know if it's space in the library. I would say, you know, if you go to any of our branches, I really like the way our branches are laid out. Uh, I would make some changes to our Washington Avenue branch, which is our main branch, not have it in an old office building anymore. Um, but if I had anything, if I had a wish list and no budget, I would bring our bookmobile back tomorrow. And I'd be riding that bookmobile all the time. And it would be a, it would be a, a bookmobile and a cybermobile that provided Wi-Fi wherever it was and provided laptops wherever it was. So what do you love, capital L-O-V-E, about your library? Um my staff and i know that's kind of a cheesy uh, and, and anybody who knows me I, um i don't like to answer with cheesy but that's the truth um i you know i just have people who are passionate about their job and also have a really all they all have really interesting backgrounds and they bring that to the work okay so what's the weirdest not worst but weirdest thing that you've ever seen happen in the library not necessarily in albany but in your career oh I have, yeah, I'm not going to show, share my rated R stories. I have a lot of rated <laughs> We all do, yeah. Rated, I have a lot of rated R stories. Oh, man, weirdest thing. I don't know. That's really hard because weird has just become normal. Um, I would say I was working, uh, one of the bars I worked at when I was early in my career, a branch librarian, um, it was always strange to see somebody at you know, kind of the dance night and then see them at the library the next day. <laughs> and when they, it finally would hit them either at the bar or at the club that I was working security at, it would either hit them when they were there or it hit them when they would walk in the library and be like, Oh my God, I saw you last night and you're a bouncer. 
um, those were always kind of like off-putting situations. And one time I did have to kick out a bunch of library patrons from the bar I worked at for fighting. And they came in the next day to the library and said, am I allowed in the library? And I was like, yeah, I don't want to see you at the fuse box again, but you're allowed in the library. You know, you're fine during the day when you haven't had a couple of drinks. So that, that was probably the more uncomfortable situations. And a couple of times where librarians would come to the club and it would freak them out that another librarian was working there. But strange, I mean, strange is just normal now. I mean, people talking to themselves, being stuff being left in, in study rooms, stuff going on in bathrooms. It's just the way we roll and we just go with it. So who is your favorite, quote unquote, regular patron? Oh, that's easy. I, I write a blog for the Times Union. and I, I wrote about Miss Alice. Um, Miss Alice was an older woman who lived in the South End and loved romance books. Um, and I just kind of, you know, she, I don't have any family in Albany. She kind of became my adopted family. And I mean, I was, I was engaged um, and that engagement broke up and I was brokenhearted. And I literally cried on her shoulder um, about it. I, uh, you know, I just, in my late twenties, just had bad luck in my personal life. And that woman was constantly there for me and listening to me. And I don't know if she got her great advice. I, I heard that she lived a pretty, a pretty interesting, robust life when she was young from her family. So I think she had some of the same experiences, life experiences me. And I think sometimes the romance books kind of helped her uh, with her advice, but a woman was always there for me. She was like a, you know, she was like a third grandmother for me. She passed away about eight years ago. Uh, no, less than eight. It was probably five years ago when I first came back to APL. Um, and, um, you know, I wrote a blog post about her. She just, she will always be a number one. And I still keep in contact with her family. And uh, she just was a wonderful woman and just an ear and a shoulder for me to cry on. She was great. So our last question, what are people without library cards missing out on? You know, so I once got pretty much chased out of the trustees um, conference. You're not missing out on anything with a library card because a library card is just a piece of plastic. However, that library card makes you a part of your, your account, makes you a part of that library service, and you're missing out on probably the best investment that your tax dollars can make. So, uh, you know, you should get a library card so you can use us for everything that's available. But that piece of plastic doesn't do anything for you, but that membership does a tremendous amount for you. So go get that membership and, you know, you're just a lot, you can use all of our services and why wouldn't you want access to that? Okay, so thank you so much for being such a good sport and answering our silly questions in this crazy, crazy yes, time. Good this is, you know, this is a crazy time and, and it's always nice to ask these questions, especially now, because, you know, it's just a nice way to, to wrap things up and to kind of get your mind off things for a little while. So we are going to link to your library's plan on our, uh, on our website in the description and it should be in the description in Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and, and every place else, as long as it's a clickable link. Uh, if anybody needs it and can't get it, just shoot us an email. Go to the, the contact us section of our website, and we'll get it to you. Um, you know, and, and thank you so much for coming on. I really thank appreciate you, you taking on. the time. Yeah, it was great. I, and I listened to the podcast, and I think it's great. Um, and you give librarians voices, which is awesome. And we just wanted, you know, again, we, we're not the experts. We don't think our plan is perfect. But we wanted to share with other peers of ours who were struggling our plan and try to get it in as many people's hands as possible to facilitate a conversation maybe with their system and their leadership to say, we need something similar to this because we're going to get there. I mean, we're, we're going to get to life 
that's a normal, um, but we're only going to do it if we're smart about it and plan everything out. Okay. Thanks again. I really appreciate you, you coming on. Thank you, Scott. What and, a maybe, and maybe we'll have you on one time to talk not about this too. Yeah, that would be awesome. Okay. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thank you. Take care. We have come to the end of another episode of The Library Pros, and we thank you for listening. If you have any questions or comments on this or any episode, click on the Contact Us form on our website, thelibrarypros.com. Visit us on Twitter at The Library Pros and on Facebook at facebook.com slash thelibrarypros. Don't forget to tell a friend or colleague and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our podcasting engineer, Dean Meyer. Remember, the opinions stated by the Library Pros and their guests are solely those of Chris and Bob and are not those of the Sachem Public Library, the MS Clark Memorial Library, or any other library. See you next time. You've been listening to the Library Pros Podcast. The Library Pros are brought to you by Pippet Productions and by the Library Pros themselves, Krista Christofaro and Bob Johnson. Special thanks to Sachem Public Library for providing space for this podcast. Until the next turn of the page, I'm your announcer, Carlton Welch.